I'm Anthony Fidella. You're listening to Longest Wolf. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. So, what year did you join? I joined in 93. And how old were you at the time? 19 years old. And where are you from? Gloucester City, New Jersey. Originally, that's when I joined. What part of Jersey is that? Northern, Southern? South, right across the South river. Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so you're like kind of a local Philly guy. Kind of, yeah. yeah. All right, so you're 19 years old. It's 1993. Desert Storm's over? Somalia just finished. Somalia. 10th Mountain. 10th Mountain. The unit that I went to were one of the ones that were involved in the Black Hawk Down. It was yeah. a sister unit. The I, only I think, army, regular army unit involved in that. Yeah. Other than, I mean, there was like Delta and stuff. So but. I knew some guys that were involved in that. You joined, you go to basic training at Fort Benning in 93. Mm-hmm. What was Benning like in 93? Because so most of our listeners are going to be post 9-11 guys. And it, I guess it's, I don't want to say basic training has gotten soft because it, it hasn't gotten soft, but I think it's gotten softer than it was in 93 maybe. I don't know. There's, I think there's consistent rumors that go along with every every year. It's like we always heard rumors of people who had like stress cards and who got extra phone calls and got candy and all that you, stuff. You guys were hearing that. Back in 93. We so. were hearing that in like right. 2008. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I none think of it's that just, is all bullshit. Yeah. Could the drill sergeants put their hands on you in 93? Uh, they weren't supposed to. But did they? I can neither confirm nor okay. deny that. <laughs> so My you social did. security still registered. So. <laughs> So you did uh, 16 weeks straight was through it, uh, training? I think it was 14 and a half. And then you got assigned to Fort Drum as a different man. Did you pick that duty station? Or you- so no, funny story. I actually was unassigned Ranger Battalion, 31 uniform, which is communications. Really? Yeah, I, believe it or not, I scored, I almost maxed out my ASVAB and I had the choice to do anything. And I was one of those kids who watched the recruiter shows and was like, oh my God, I want to be on the boat in the woods, in the swamp, you know, getting all stinky and wet. And they kept showing them to me. So I signed up to be a ranger. And then when I went to leave, I was too fat. So the MEP sent me back. (laughs) Yeah, I was too fat to go in the infantry. Jesus. So you go back, you lose weight, you come back. Then they finally put you on the bus for Benning. Yep, finally got to go. And uh, right away I was singled out because of my height. And even before, you know, when you're in the in-processing. So in Benning, we had like a week of in-processing where we would get our uniforms and everything. And then we would get sent to the battalion we were going to do our basic training at. And immediately I was like the platoon sergeant picked out because I'm the shortest guy in the group. And it was just like off to the races from there. It was crazy. Drill sergeant's in your shit constantly. Yeah. Fucking with you. Well, yeah, I think also they definitely saw something because right away I was put on like the quote unquote fast track as a private in basic training and I was made a squad leader and I I actually got fired like seven times in one day. It was crazy. My drill sergeant was really just trying to hound on me how important leadership is and there's so many different facets that you always have to be constantly aware of. So what happens after basic? After basic, I went to Fort Drum. And we were a part of the cohort unit, which uh, I thought was awesome. And there was, I think, uh, six of us that went through basic all together and then got sent to Fort Drum, same battalion, same platoon. So that's cool. So you had a couple of guys you'd just known for the long haul. Yeah, yeah. And what unit at Drum? At that time, it was 3rd Battalion, 14th Infantry Regiment. Now, right when I was switching from Drum to Campbell, we reflagged to 4th Battalion, 31st Polar Bears. 431. 431. I was always jealous of the Polar Bears band because they had the, I've told you this before, they had yeah. the coolest fucking battalion crest, man. So last week I was doing a volunteer event and I met a corporal who was in the guard who had a 10th Mountain patch, combat patch, and we were talking. He was in 431. Oh, nice. And he said there's a rivalry between 431 and 214, which was 314's sister unit, and he called it the Golden Showers. I almost slapped him. <laughs> you would have never said that in the UK because it's the Golden Dragons. Right. Yeah. You would have never said that to us. Fuck no, I got the shit slapped out of you. Yeah, yeah. So Philly is five, six hours from drum. About five, yeah. I used to come home about five. Yeah, so when I was dating Steph, she was here in Philly, I was at drum, and yeah, you can make it four and a half. Four and a half, five, yeah. Yeah, in the summertime, man, four, and you're really hauling ass. Yeah. I would come after 24-hour CQ shifts, man. And I would just be like, fuck uh, it, I'm going. <laughs> so I'd get like five or six Red Bulls, man, chug them and just race down the road and pass <laughs> out for a day. They didn't have Red Bull back then <laughs> when I was doing it. No, they didn't. We just Shit. had coffee grinds in our lip or something, you know. So how did you like drum? I think it's one of those hindsight things. And we had talked about this before. Why I was there, I just thought it was like horrific. 
training was so hard. We were constantly training. I mean, there was a, a level of prestige and honor in being there. However, it was always freaking cold. And uh, cold, cold. Yeah, cold, cold. You know, my first field, it was a Mark 19 range. We had been there a couple of weeks and it was negative 67 degrees. They shut down the post and they expected us to stay out there. And my platoon sergeant was a Vietnam veteran. He was like, no, we're coming back. We're driving back in a whiteout. It was crazy. With the, and they would have us out in tents with those fucking potbelly stoves, man, that didn't, didn't warm fucking three feet around them. We didn't have any of that. You didn't have potbellies? No. <laughs> Holy shit. No, we didn't have any of that. Christ, man. Did they give you the big white Mickey Mouse boots when you yeah, got Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I was at the Berlin Farmer's Market not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, and there was a guy actually looking at them, and I said, have you ever worn them? And he goes, no. I said, they suck. They're the biggest piece of shit. And the person selling them looked at me like, what did you say? I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I mean, they'll keep your feet warm, but like your your foot is just one massive blister after oh, about horrible. 15 minutes of wearing them. It's horrible. And then the, the remember the gloves, the extreme cold weather gloves, the snot gloves? Those are the best. They had that, like, I don't know what that was, like, fucking rawhide or whatever was on the back of them, so you wouldn't, because you could see the dudes that, like, they lost their shit because their nose was all, like, chapped and, like, scabby. And it would be so cold, we would, I used to dip back then, we weren't, we couldn't take our fingers out of the gloves, so we would use the can, the lid, and just scoop it in Ugh. and pack it down with our tongue. It was nasty. Yeah, dude, it gets so cold. Like, I used to dip, too, man. You spit, and it's frozen before it hits the ground. But at that age, you're indestructible, right? Yeah, fucking 10-foot-tall, bulletproof. <laughs> I guess. What, 5'3", five, 5'4"? Five, five, four. Five, five, a good day in sneakers. Yeah, what were you with uh, the Ripple Souls, man? That gave you an extra, like, half inch, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't help, you know, on those force marches, though. When guys like you were like, I had to take three steps to your one. Yeah. You know, it was horrible. Yeah. But when we got in the jungles of Panama, I always got redemption. Yeah. Because I could just weave and bob. I'd have like the, back then we had the Prick 77s and we went to the Singars, I think. I forget the terminology, but um, I'd have the radio and the 60 and the spare barrel on my back because I'm just like low center of gravity walking through the jungle and the guys are getting all frustrated. Cause so was that our deployment to Panama? Or were you guys going to Jungle Warfare School? Jungle Warfare, JOTC, yeah. I don't think they had, I think they shut it down in 2000. Uh, I think they, yeah, they moved it to Hawaii now, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. I think so. I got to do that twice. It was really awesome. It was That's cool. my favorite deployment, yeah, without a doubt. That sounds way better than like NTC or JRTC. We yeah, I've been to Louisiana. both of them. It is. It's, it's Fort Polk is a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Oh, God. It was Like horrible. every fucking fire ant in Louisiana is on Fort Polk. I honestly believe I was colder at Fort Polk than I was at Drum. It was crazy. Like being out there, for some reason, we had this one day where everyone was just like nuts cold like blue lips and everything it was only like 20 or it was like 30 or 40 degrees i think but with the rain and the wind and everything it was one of the most miserable days that i've ever had in the military ntc was cold man like in the middle of the summertime like california because it was like 90 in the day yeah. and then it would drop down to like 55 at night yeah being that tent just shivering the shit out of it we had tents yeah we had tents man <laughs> we didn't have any of that yeah you were in like pre-internet army yeah yeah i think we just just started with the emails and the internet i mean we had a little bit of the internet um no cell phones though no cell phones uh How did that actually work? that's not true uh, towards the end of uh me being in the military we started to get cell phones not in the military but like cell phones started to become a thing my first cell phone was about a 12 foot long had all yeah the say by the bell yeah it had the actual handset and it the had antenna the, on it the antenna and the big ass buttons and you carried it around because you know at drum we were always on one hour two hour recall so i thought it was the coolest thing now I can go, you know, and I wouldn't have to call in every hour, every two hours. So that's how you used to have to do it. You, yeah. you would have to call into the CQ or whatever? Yeah, if we were going anywhere, we had to sign in and sign out. Because drum, we had those cycles. I forget, it was like black cycle. I forget yeah. how, how it works. So it was like global QRF, basically. Yes, exactly. That's what it was. I think it's split amongst all of the 18th Airborne Corps. Yeah. And there would be at least a platoon, I know. Sometimes it was a company that would like go so far as to have, to have their like A and B bags palletized at the airfield. Oh, wow, like yeah. ready to go. Yeah, so that off. makes more sense for your era because something was already going on. Uh, for me, we always had to have a packing list, but we didn't, we kept it in a room. And then when we were being told that we were going to Haiti, when that whole mess happened, we had to like pack up everything. In fact, <laughs> we saw it on CNN before we were taught that 10th Mountain Division was getting deployed. Holy <laughs> before shit. we were even told, it was crazy. That's a fun way to find out. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I was like, what? So have you been to Panama before Haiti? So I graduated in 93, boot camp in 93, went to drum in January of 94, February, we went to Panama. And then 
that same year in the summer, I think it was 94, we went to West Point for a couple months to train the cadets, which was an awesome time. And then right after that, I think is when we went to Haiti. I could be getting the, the West Point thing mixed up, not quite sure. But I remember the first year I spent more time away from Fort Drum, I think, than I did at yeah. Fort Drum. What, what was the mission in Haiti? Operation Uphold Democracy, I think. So I don't know if you remember when they overthrew their government. You're, you're probably about 12 or 13. Yeah. If I think you're about 10 years behind me. They overthrew their government, President Aristide, and we were sent in to reinstate him. Now, I've never actually had confirmation, but from what I understand, we had uh, 82nd Airborne Unit was in the air ready to do a combat jump, and they turned them around the last second and turned it into a peacekeeping mission. I don't know if that's true or not, but we were on the ground. You guys were already on ground when this was going No, on? no. They were supposed to be the first ones, but 10th Mountain Division, I think, was, we were the first ones on the ground. And we went there. We didn't have any tents or anything. We, we occupied uh, Port-au-Prince Airport, and my uh, unit was designated as security for that airport. Did you have vehicles or anything? So we did. Yeah, we had our Humvees. Yeah. They came later, though. They did came. you have toes on the Humvees? We, we had our toes with us. They were stored in the Connex. We had the 50 cals in the Mark 19. No, we had the M60s in the Mark 19. We hadn't gotten 50 cals yet. Never had to use them though, right? I never had the fire one, no. It was pretty chill there in Haiti. Like, yeah, I think we had- It didn't get as bad as we had, there, was, there was one mission we had pop shots shot at us. I was the rear truck in the convoy and my uh, sister truck in our section was in the front. And I think so, it might've been vice versa, I'm not sure, but there was pop shots, I remember, but that's about it. But it never like jumped off like they were, no, thank God it didn't. No, thank goodness, yeah. Yeah. And how long were you there for? I think it was about two and a half months until we turned it over to the next unit. Who came? Do you remember who replaced you? I don't know if it was the UN or if it was another... I think it might have been different countries. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, no. But it wasn't like the blue-helmeted UN troops? It was just like another UN country? Yeah, I think so. I'm not quite sure. I was 19 years old and I just wanted to get the hell Didn't out of there. Didn't know shit about any of that stuff anyway. Yeah. yeah. I just was a private doing whatever I was told, you know? So you get back to drum. How long did you spend at drum total? A little over four years. I was, yeah, over. I think a little bit over four years. So right around three years, I was getting ready to go to Special Forces, and my first sergeant wanted me to go to PLDC instead. I had already made the cutoff points for E5 at like three years. So they wanted me to go to PLDC, so I postponed the Special Forces thing and then went to PLDC, got my E5, was supposed to go to selection again, or SFA, excuse me, I was supposed to go to that again. And then I had like a series of crazy accidents. I rolled my ankle and broke my finger and did all like crazy stuff. Ended up reenlisting and getting sent to Fort Campbell after about four years, yeah. So you were 23 at this point? Yeah. What happened when we get to Campbell? Do you like it there? Nope. Fucking sucks, yep. right? Yeah, dude, same thing. Yeah, it was horrible. From drum to hemp. It was horrible, Campbell, and I hated it. Oh. Now, I had some of my best soldiers, one or two of them. I had some really good soldiers at drum. You know, the guys that were just a pain in the balls at the beginning, but once you break them and you show them, look, our way's a better way. Yeah. You know, and they're the ones that are coming from, like, the gangs and you know, all the rough neighborhoods and they just don't want to take anything from anybody. But once you break them, there's like that wild horse. Once they're broken and they understand this is a better way. You know, I just got in contact with one guy probably about a couple months ago who was probably the biggest pain in the ass I've ever had in the military. And he retired, I think, at like 17, 18 years. But he was like, you know, gang tattoos. Oh, yeah. Told me he didn't work for me after hours. And, you know, that it's was like, a mistake. Oh yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> that was a mistake. Tony Five, you don't work for them after hours. Yeah, Fort Drum. Yeah. At Drum, you can be made to do like especially stupid shit just because of the weather. Like I remember having motherfuckers out there in like blizzards, like sweeping the snow off the sidewalk. <laughs> what about sweeping the sunlight off the sidewalk? That's a good one, dude. We used to do sweeping that. the fucking sunlight. Yeah, yeah. Campbell, I had a couple good soldiers. One of the guys is like I consider him my brother. His name is Chris Dunham. He's in uh, Kentucky right now. He retired, but you ever had, you were an MCO, right? Yeah, I was E5. Yeah, you remember every once in a while you, out of a group of guys, there's always that one person who seems to be struggling with certain things, but you just see it in his eyes. You know what I mean? If you're able to relate to him in a different way or show him that you're willing to take the time to teach him, he's going to be the star of the show. Sure. That, I had one or two of them there that were just phenomenal. And I had, um, I get emotional talking about this, but uh, about a year ago, a guy 
had gotten in touch with me and he's a first sergeant now. I think his last name is Pacheco. And he said, I just, I've been trying to get in touch with you for years. I want to thank you for one time you spent over four hours on the range helping me qualify for expert for my EIB. And I still use those same techniques today. Nice. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, well, that, uh, was, that was some of my proudest moments, man, was like taking my soldiers, when I was E5, taking uh, my E4s to the E5 board, going in yeah. there and sitting in the back and just sweating profusely as the sergeant major just grilled the shit out of them, man. And yeah. then when they'd come out and they'd make points and cut off, dude, now they were peers. Like, that felt really good. I never got to do that. Um, I only spent like uh, less than two years at Campbell, and one of them was pretty much on med board, so... I didn't get to do that, but I was able to get a guy into ranger school who really wanted it really bad and no one was willing to give him the time of day and he smoked it his first time through. He actually passed away not too long ago. I've had some really, just really good experiences as a leader coming into a unit like Fort Campbell where they didn't have the discipline that we had at Drum. They just weren't used to that kind of leadership. So once I was able to show them, hey, look, I'm not just telling you what to do because I'm the sergeant, like there's a reason, there's a method behind the madness. And my my whole purpose is to replace myself. Right. Once I did that, uh, they really grasped it. And, you know, I still talk to a couple of them today. And that means a lot to me, especially going through what I've gone through and forgetting all of that stuff. Yeah. Forgetting all the good stuff. And I feel like when you're in 10th Mountain, you're proud of being 10th Mountain even when it's over, like, because it sucked so bad, right? But, like, 101st, I felt like, and this is not all of them. I don't want a blanket statement, but 101st, it's like they were proud of being 101st just because it's 101st. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, Screaming Eagles, Band of Brothers. And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, but that wasn't fucking you, though, right? Like, that was, What's that was, this? That was dudes in the 1940s. Like, I think it's resting on your laurels. Is that a good phrase or kind of riding the yeah. coattails of yeah. your predecessors or something yeah, like that just yeah. like yeah it was horrible we would have to go do stuff like bury ammunition because we wouldn't get ammunition for the field so anytime we had extra we would bury it and hide it and right. it and then go out and get it when we had another field we were literally told to yell bang bang you're dead before i mean it was just like crazy that's fucking nuts so yeah you're that you're at campbell you're about there for a year so let's talk about the accident mm. Yeah, what accident. happened? So I had, uh, this is another one of those ironic moments in time. I had made my E6 cutoff scores in five years. I was really super excited about that. That's quick. Yeah, I had a B-knock date, and I had broken my arm in uh, martial arts and had, like, a plate put into it. I have, like, a six-inch plate in my arm, and I wasn't able to go to B-knock. We were out in the field for like 30 days. It was 30, I think it was a 30 day field exercise. And I was just getting ready. I had another date three or four weeks away to go to BNOC. All I had to do was finish BNOC. I'd get my E6. And um, it was the last night of the exercise. I had my section. We were overwatching a position in the back 40 at Campbell. And a first sergeant or an OC was coming through. And we had Concertino wires. So we let him in. Nighttime had my nods on. I challenged him, but he was on my E6 board, and he was also on my NCO of the quarter board, or NCO of the mother, one of the one of those boards. So he knew me, so we were kind of shooting the shit back and forth. And he started to drive away, and as he was driving away, I got called across the road, and I had to go to my other truck. So as I was walking, I heard some rocks being kicked up, and I wasn't quite sure. And I vaguely remember, you know, this is one of those moments in time that will haunt you for the rest of your life. Like, I vaguely remember saying... What is that noise? Oh, that's the rocks from the tires. And I kept walking. Well, I didn't realize he had concertina wire wrapped around his axle. He was dragging it behind him. So I stepped in the concertina wire and immediately it like ripped my foot almost all the way uh, 180 degrees. Shit. And I thought my foot was cut off. But I fell and it, the concertina like wrapped me up and was like dragging me down the rocky road. So my head's like, I was in and out of consciousness and just fucked up. How far did he drive? I don't know. No idea. I imagine you blacked out at some point? Yeah, I was in and out, blacking in and out. All I remember was the other section sergeant, Sergeant Wilkins, came over to me, and he grabbed my, my, my hand, and I said, find my foot, Ed, find my foot, because I thought my foot had been cut off. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's all I remember. 
And then they couldn't get a bird in the medevac me, so they had to take me in the back of a Humvee. So we're riding on the back 40, you know, on the rocky roads bouncing. And I'm like trying to just focus on my breathing and the medics back there. And they got me to the ER and they shot me up with all of this um, morphine. And I remember um, um, I had these one nurse on each side of me and they were holding my hand. They were talking to me and I was like, what the hell is going on? And the orthopedic surgeon walks in and he was like, Anthony, how did I know it was you? Because <laughs> I'd had a couple injuries already. Yeah. And he was like, all right, I got to set this foot and get it ready for surgery tomorrow. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem, sir. You know, when I'm all doped up on morphine. And he's like, all right, on the count of three. And he goes, one, two, and he pulls it. And all I feel is like my the bones in my ankle just like cringing together. And I just screamed like really loud, grabbed the nurses. And I think I like slammed their fists together, something like that. The girl showed me the cut the next day from the ring on the guy's hand or something and passed out. Next thing I know, I woke up after the surgery the next day. I was just... And it hurt that bad. And you are already like doped, doped up. doped up, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, just the grinding of the bones. I could feel the bones grinding as he was trying to get the foot back into place just to sit overnight so how other than your foot being fucked up like what any other injuries major yeah so from what i understand now i have a just recently i went through a couple different tests and um they have a mild tbi which explains a lot of the confusion um when i woke up like after i got off all the crazy pain drugs i knew something was off nothing was just ever right again yeah you know i didn't really want to be around my friends from outside the military anymore i i I just all of a sudden became very serious and I just had to get stuff done. And I think um, that is the trauma part because I feel like when we go through trauma like that, life becomes much more serious and we're not indestructible anymore. So the idea is I have to get as much done now because there's not much time left. Sure. You know, the sky's falling in type of mentality. And you're like what, like 26, 25, 25, 26? 25, yeah. So yeah, that really, that really destroys that facade of indestructibility right real quickly right? and then you have no no one telling you how to live life any other way yeah so you're left here in devices i didn't know anything else so i just shut it down i didn't tell anybody about the accident I, you know i remember i told my mom and i called her and told her I hurt my leg and they're kicking me out of the army <laughs> you know they're retiring me out but nobody, how long did you spend like rehabbing and stuff i don't think i ever really actually did any physical therapy for that i don't know because back then it was like you go to physical therapy they give you the list of exercises do you do them and that's it yeah you know because you can't keep going all the time because you're missing time sure yeah that was back then though so did they have you like for that the next couple of months like were you yeah I was quarters in a cast. or anything yeah so, okay. yeah yeah i was uh i was in a cast and on crutches and stuff and that's when they started the medical board evaluation medical evaluation board yeah maybe, yeah and you did not want that right so I actually had a choice. The choice was try and get a reassignment to a desk job or get medically retired out. And a desk job to me at that point was the worst thing you could have ever done to me. Hindsight, maybe I should have taken the desk job. Yeah. <laughs> do you think being at Campbell had anything to do with your decision? Like you think maybe if you'd been at Drum with like the same leaders and the same Joes, like you would have been like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah, I'll do a desk job here. I don't know. I never thought about that. Well, that'll give you something to think yeah, about. Yeah, right? Yeah. While we're having ice cream, listen to jazz. Yeah, dude. <laughs> you have an epiphany later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? For people that aren't in the know on this, there's this awesome fucking place in Philly that is an ice cream shop that plays jazz yeah. from 8 to 10 at night. My nine-year-old yeah. son is super jazzed up to go to it, so we're going to go check that out. Yep. Pretty exciting. So you get med boarded out. I get med boarded out. And then I go from that's Campbell. when shit falls apart, right? Not quite just yet. Something was off. I kind of knew something was off. I go to Campbell and, or excuse me, I left Campbell and I go straight down to Florida to Orlando. One of my old soldiers was from down there. So I said, hey, I've never been to Florida. So I'll go down there. We'll hang out, I'll go to school. And uh, I did that. I went to college. What school did you go to? I, I started at Valencia Community College. And then that's when 9-11 happened. That's when the shit hit the fan for me. That's when I really, like, I remember there was this moment at Fort Campbell one of, the, one of the deployments I always wanted to do was Sinai, the Egypt deployment. Yeah. I always wanted to do it. I thought that was just the coolest thing. And I remember I was on battalion duty, 24 on, 72 off. And my unit had just deployed to Sinai. And uh, my soldiers had deployed without me. And I was walking across the battalion grass. I, I just get goosebumps thinking about this. And I just stopped because it was so quiet. And I just felt like the biggest piece of shit fucking loser 
I had ever known in my life. Right. And I was just devastated. And I didn't understand what was going on or why I felt like that, but I just felt like I had failed at what I was trained to do. Sure. So that was the very first incident that I can remember. And then I went to college. I got out and I was going to college. Hated all those kids, just couldn't get any friends. I only had my, you know, my buddy from the military and his friends, and they really didn't like me too much either. And uh, 9-11 happened. Were you doing okay in school? Yeah, I was doing all right in school because I was, I was focusing on school. Yeah. I did, it was still small classes, so I didn't have the attention problem anymore. I was playing a lot of video games too. I was kind of, you know, yeah. secluding myself. And I was working at a, a restaurant, so that would be like my social activity working and drinking afterwards, so... But when 9-11 happened, things really started to get bad. And, and for me, it was interesting because all of the nightmares, I would have nightmares every single night, multiple times a night, but none of them were really about my accident. They were all about being a failure. Like crazy shit. Like I'm standing in front of Yoda and the Jedi Council and I'm getting fired from being a Jedi. Right. You know what I mean? Or I have a, a test I have to take. It's a really important test and there's... I need to find a pencil and there's a desk with a thousand pencils on it. And every time I'd reach for one, the pencils would move out of the way in my hand and I wouldn't be able to take the test and I'd get kicked out of school. But then there was some serious ones. Like I remember one of the worst ones I ever had was I was with my sister. We were in combat uniform. We were walking out of a tent, getting ready to go out to fight. And I was checking all of her gear, making sure she's okay. And as we're walking out, this big hand comes on my chest and says, you can't go, you're unfit for duty. And she came back and I still remember, I get goosebumps thinking, I still remember her face was all like blown apart. And like she said something like, why weren't you there or, or something like that. And that oh, chokes me up just thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, it's heavy, but man. But that, uh, yeah. When I, when I went to the University of Central Florida, I was assigned uh, somebody to make sure that I'm doing all my work because the VA paid for the college. And I was telling her I'm having a real hard time concentrating in, in the big classes and stuff like that. So she sent me to a therapist. And, you know, that's how it starts, right? Why don't you go see a therapist? Oh, yeah, we got some candy for you. But she sent me to a therapist or a doctor. And um, he started me on medication. But I never talked about the nightmares because they weren't about my accident. So I never talked about my accident at all. Right. All of my nightmares were always about being a failure. Every once in a while, I would have something really violent going on. But... Most of the time, it was just always about being a failure. So I'm having these nightmares every fucking night. I'm having these nightmares. And I was just barely like hanging on. And then I remember we were on a spring break cruise. Uh, we were on the ship. And when we launched the first missiles into uh, my memory, was it Afghanistan or Iraq? First one. Afghanistan was Af the first one. Yeah, the first missiles. And I drank so much, I got alcohol poison that night. Because I just, I just didn't want to be there. Yeah. And I remember, the only thing I really remember from that night is we're sitting on the cruise ship in this hall listening to this comedian. It's like 1130 at night and he starts talking about George Bush and I try to rush the stage. <laughs> I tried to rush the stage to kick his ass, you know. because so you were crazy fucked up. Yes, I yeah, I was. And that's not even the worst. I mean, I got way worse. Graduated college and started getting jobs as a, an IT guy, IT guy. And is that what your degree was in? Yeah, yep, IT, yeah, yep. And I kept having to leave these jobs through HR because I wasn't getting along with everyone. It wasn't, you know, I always thought my way was better. So my directors were stupid and they had no idea what the hell they are doing. And why don't you just listen to me because I'm God and I know everything. You know what I mean? And I would lose these jobs and I would get another job that paid more and I would lose that job. I'd get another job and paid more and lose that job. And eventually... You know, I'm here in Philly working at one of the universities on a con. I had a contract. I was making six figures and I was running the entire network for one of their departments, 170 some computers. And, I'm, you know, making great money, but I'm like five foot three, 210 pounds, drinking like crazy on the weekend. I'm on like 30 pills a day. I didn't know what was left, right, up or down. And I'm just trying to kill myself. You know, it was nuts. Right. And I was just barely hanging on. I mean, I put my hand around my sister's throat, who was like the most important person in my life, even to this day. Never thought I would do something like that. You know, punching holes in my walls, just fighting. I cracked the guy's head open with a bike lock one time. It was just just insane. I just had no idea who I was anymore. And like I was telling the other day, I was riding on my motorcycle one day, coming back from the ER room at the VA. And I'm just crying my eyes out, just praying to a God I didn't believe in that, you know, just please 
like give me the strength to put my bike into the wall because everything else I failed at don't let me fail at this and I knew at that moment I just had that moment of awareness and it was like I need help like and I'd already been seeing counselors for years yeah but I would never get help she would say why don't you go to this group no leave that to the guys who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan sure why don't you come to that group why don't you do this program I, I wouldn't do anything but every week I kept kept going back to a 65 year old little Indian lady and she's you know she's I, I said to her right before she left I said you saved my life she said no you, you saved your own life you know I just helped you say it and but that's the type of person that she was that's was, awesome yeah it was awesome stuck with you yeah so after I had that moment on the motorcycle I went to her and I said I, all right what do you want me to do and two weeks later I was in a hospital you know VA hospital Perry Point Maryland three months there doing a, an intensive PTSD program Got out of the hospital three months early because my dad was dying in my living room from pancreatic cancer. That was crazy. And I was introduced to meditation while I was in the hospital and somebody had, one of my neighbors had sent me an email about this Zen Buddhist monk who does these meditation retreats for veterans who have PTSD and their family members. And it was up at in Rhinebeck, New York, up at the Omega Center. And his name is Claude Anson Thomas and he travels the world He's a mendicant monk, so he teaches like how to live with trauma, and he talks about everyone has their own Vietnam, their own kind of war. It doesn't have to be military, you know, based. It's just trauma in general. And I went to that retreat, and that was he a vet or yeah, vet? he's a Vietnam veteran. Okay. Yeah. And at that point, I was ready to kill myself again because I'd gone from being in the hospital and kind of getting some kind of foundation to being back in the city and just not knowing anything. My dad's dying, my whole family's living in my house, my sister and I are fighting like cats and dogs. I had no support network. The VA had failed me. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. All they kept doing was giving me more pills. So I went to this retreat and I heard this guy talk and I'm like, holy shit, this guy is saying exactly what I have been feeling. And he's talking about, he's talking about learning how to live in a different relationship with our experiences so that we can become an actual part of the society that we're in. And um, that was really when I started to learn how to slow myself down, to learn how to get off all that medication, change all my behaviors, understand that I'm the problem. It's not you, it's not my experiences, it's how I'm reacting to my experiences. And he would always say, we are not disordered. You know, he's, we have post-traumatic stress, not post-traumatic stress disordered. There's no disorder here. It's a natural right. occurrence. Right, right. We ex that's we ex not a weird reaction to trauma. Yeah. That's exactly a normal reaction yeah, exactly. to trauma. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So stop thinking that you're broken. You're not broken. You've just experienced different things than other people. You have to learn how to live life in alliance with those experiences. You can't hide from them. And he would say to me, he'd say, so I became a student and I studied for several years with him and I still what, talked to what him. What year did this start? 2012. You know, studying with him and it was just, Basically, I would have to sit in meditation every morning and every night and just practice. And that's all it is. It's all about a practice. And what he would say is, because I'd ask him, why do we do this? Why do we have to sit? Why do we? And he's like, does it, why does it matter? Why is an unanswerable question? You know, he's like, there is no answer to why. Sure. You know, but he would say, just do it and see what happens. That's actually a really good answer to why. Yeah. <laughs> is that there is no answer. There is. If you think <laughs> about it, one. you know, he would say, just do it and see what happens. And he was, and I argue, I love to argue. Anthony, if I tell you the moon is, or the sun is blue today, instead of arguing with me, I would rather you just go outside and look and then come back and say it's not blue. And he would say, just do the next right thing and see what happens and your life will unfold in front of you the way it's going to unfold. Yeah. And it's stuff like that. He would always talk about suffering, this idea of suffering, how we always, you know, the majority of the suffering that we experience, we are creating. I want my life to be different. You know, I wish I had a better house. I wish I was tall. I wish I had the cute girl. I wish I had, you know, this and that, the right car, instead of just appreciating what I have right now at this moment. So he would say, like, in order for us to heal through the trauma, we can't wish that stuff away. We have to walk through the suffering. And when we walk through the suffering, or he would say, healing is not the absence of suffering. In order to heal, we have to walk through the suffering. And the best way to do that is to share our experiences with other people so that we can build a community that can help us carry the load. Like General Mattis refers to PTSD as um, post-traumatic growth. Yeah, I actually really like that. Yeah? 
that's something yeah. you would like yeah i really like that and that's something i mean it's that obviously not for not for everybody it's not growth but if you do the work right you it, don't play the you're once you come to look at yourself as not the victim exactly that yeah. like you're you know you're bigger than this one incident or right. this big one thing like once you do that then like i mean an explosive exponential growth and like yeah. you as a person yeah and i think that ties into everything that we're doing here at the high school too it, it's a good story yesterday i had before we do that let's tell them why we're here at the high school so I am the platoon leader for the Mission Continues. It's a national nonprofit organization that focuses on empowering veterans to get back out in the community and serve and become the leaders that we all know that, they, that we can be. And how and, has that helped you in your journey? Oh, because these veteran-based organizations where they give the veterans the opportunity to be around each other again, I think is one of the best things that society could have ever done for us. The, the way that I explain it is this, the mission continues has created, or even Team Rubicon or Red, White, and Blue, all of them, Travis Manion, they, they create this container, right? And they create this space for us veterans to come together. And the, the mission continues is not healing post-traumatic stress, right? Travis Manion is not healing post-traumatic stress. They're not, they're not saving lives or any of that stuff. But what they're doing is they're creating this container for us to come together and they're holding the space for us to go through the healing process together, right? And not um, only together, but like with underprivileged communities as well. Yeah, so that's that's a whole other facet of it. So the mission continues, does that, and that has helped me tremendously because circling back to what I said about 15 minutes ago about forgetting all of that stuff, I, um, I was with some veterans that I met through the mission continues one day, and this woman says to me, we need each other to remind us what we're capable of, and I started crying. <laughs> I get choked up just thinking because she was so right. Like within 10 hours of being with the veterans in the mission continues, I felt like a light switch was turned on and I thought something that had been dead for 17 years came to life again. And it's been nonstop, it's been great. Their platoon program, I run it here in Philadelphia. I'm partnered with Edison High School. It's an amazing high school. Edison High School actually lost more veterans to the Vietnam War, more students to the Vietnam War than any high school in the country. 64. 64, Edison 64, yep. And so you have a rich military tradition here. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Not by choice, though. Right. Not by choice, right? You, the, the kids that used to come to this, the kids that come here now have no choice. So we have a project this weekend, and what I like to do is, well, there's two things that I said first coming to the school. I said, number one, it's got to it's gotta always be about the students because this is their school. And number two, if, if we trust each other, myself and the administration, and we're always transparent with each other, we're gonna do amazing things. And they're both happening, and I'm really excited about that. But what I like to do is for the preparation for these events, I'll get the students outside to prepare. And we always talk about something. And yesterday, talking about the trauma thing, yesterday, they were goofing off. They're kids, it's a very low-income neighborhood. There's fights here every single day. Um, the kids walk the hallways, curse. I mean, it's, it's, these kids are tough, but they're traumatized every single day. Yeah. But they're good kids. They're amazing kids. And they will grasp on any kind of positive adult attention that they can get. You know, they act like they're tough and they don't need it, but you see it in their eyes. Yeah. You know? And uh, we were out there yesterday and they're goofing off. I'm trying to teach them how to use concrete and they're goofing off. And I just stopped and I started to talk to them. And I said, well, what do you think? I'm just like some white guy out here because I want to feel good about myself? I said, no. I said, listen, I looked him on face and said, I was sexually molested when I was a child. I grew up in a house, you know, that wasn't a very safe environment to be in. Uh, I went in the military and had some very traumatic experiences. I've done a lot of crazy shit in my life. I said, the reason why I'm out here is because I see that look in your eyes every day when you're walking through the high school. I know that look, all right? And I can relate with you. And I'm gonna tell you guys right now, everything that you're going through, you may not see it right now, but you guys are still here in school, you're the seniors you're the ones that have the potential to be the greatest leaders in this country because you've been through so much more than everyone else and you're still here. You haven't given up. And after that, the rest of the day, it was just like, boom. Like they get it. They right. understood, right? Because that was, that was that human connection, that relation. Sure. You know? But I, I believe everyone has that opportunity. It's whether or not they're willing to look at it. You know? Right. And our challenge, for me anyway, having gone through all of that, trying to kill myself, you know, doing all that damage in my life. And uh, coming back on the other side, now it's my turn to reach back into the darkness with my hand, like that Vietnam veteran did for me. And that's that's the hardest part to figure out how to do that, yeah. you know? Because that's not to say you don't still struggle. 
No, of course. I think I struggle every day. Every right? day. I always say the guy, that guy's right behind my right shoulder. He's always tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, come on. Come on. I know how to handle the situation. Yeah. Let me do it. Let me do it. You know? But every day you take one step. Yeah. One step, one step at a time. Yep. One step in front of the other. And you become stronger and stronger every yep. single day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one day maybe that guy won't be there anymore. Maybe you'll have outpaced him. That would be great. <laughs> That's great. You know what? I, I believe that too because looking back now, like- I'm so much stronger mentally than I was a year ago. Yeah. And then last year I would would have said I'm so much stronger mentally than I was six months. You know what I mean? So how every, big has meditation been for you? It's been life changing. Saved my life without a doubt. So like, if regardless of the type of trauma, military or not, like, do you you strongly believe like that's a way for anyone that's like struggling with like deep emotional shit to you, you think that's that's a good way to a good first step. You know, that two minutes in the morning, two minutes in the yeah. evening. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the way that I was taught to start. Uh, I think everyone should do it. It'd be amazing for anyone. There's a lot of uh, schools. I'm trying to bring it to this school. There's a lot of schools that have a lot of behavior problems that have implemented meditation into their daily curriculum. And they're seeing dramatic results. Because we live in a society that's so fast-paced. And we're also, we think we're connected, but we're actually disconnected. And we are just, we are distracted by everything. We think we like looking at our phone, but we're actually we're actually addicted to our phone. I mean, it's it's neurologically been proven. Yeah, we've conditioned ourselves to be bored. Yeah, or, 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 or no, we're afraid to be bored. Yeah. Everyone's afraid well, to be bored. Well, that's thing, and we've conditioned ourselves that if we're not doing something, that we're just bored. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, something's wrong like, if I'm my, not yeah. doing something. Like, yeah. my grandpa was a kid, like, he would sit out on the porch yeah. and look at the sunset yeah. for, like, two hours and be totally content. Like, yeah. my fucking nine-year-old, dude, you think I'm gonna get him to sit still for... 30 seconds and watch a sunset like yeah. Nah, nah. yeah it's it's scary it really is and my teacher would always say anthony the e the best way for us to slow down our mind is to slow down our body so we have to slow down it has been so i went from being on 30 pills literally 30 pills a day to i take one type of medication now just for the confusion it helps me out and it's the lowest dose that you can take and i've only i've only been on that for less than a year because i I've gone through everything I felt like I could go through in, in regards to changing my behaviors and slowing myself down and all that stuff. And I was still always confused about stuff, which yeah. di didn't make sense. Like it would take me 15 seconds to figure out which piece of bread to put the peanut butter on. Right. And that's just not normal. Right. <laughs> you know, or God forbid if I had to pick out a shirt, like I would shut my closet and then stay in my pajamas for two hours longer. I mean, it was so frustrating. I would just, it was like crazy. So, so you don't even know who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's, well, I think the worst part is you know who you are and you know you're not that person right now. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, without a doubt. Or like, yeah, you don't know who this guy in exactly, your shell yeah, yeah. that's standing in front of your Yeah. Your so ears. I went through that whole transformation, lost all that weight, changed all my behaviors, really just became much a much better person. But that was that one facet. And it probably took me about a year to agree to try something again because I had such bad experiences before. But that's all because of my meditation practice. Yeah. And meditation, a lot of people think meditation is just the act of like sitting down. But that's not it. Meditation actually, what I was taught is living life. So right now we're meditating. We're, 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 we're being present with each other. Like in the moment. In the moment, right? Yeah. So there's different types of practices that you can do. And I'm not a teacher by any means. A really good book to read is At Hell's Gate by Claude Anthony Thomas. In the back of that book, he teaches you the different types of walking meditation, sitting meditation. We learned writing meditation, reading meditation, deep listening and mindful speak where everyone would be in a group and only one person's allowed to speak. And, you know, your, your job or your practice is to focus on your breath and instead of like waiting to answer, you yeah. know, because that's what we do in society. Everyone's, no one listens, everyone waits to answer, you know? Just learn how to listen and be present and let that person finish their thought, you know? Absolutely. So, and it's little stuff like that. And a lot of people think that, man, when I, when I get up from the meditation here, I, I just did 10 minutes of meditation. Uh, like, I don't feel that much better. I'm still angry and all this stuff. And I tell them that's not the purpose. The purpose is just to sit. And then three weeks from there, after you've been practicing every single day and you get cut off by somebody in the car, instead of rolling down your window and throwing your soda bottle at them, you, you have like three seconds because you're already in this, you have the muscle memory, like you were saying, of coming back to your breath. Right. And that's the change right there. That's it. It's not immediate. There are some types of practices you can do to help relax yourself. Like if you're having a panic attack, sure. I could teach you stuff like that. But the real benefit of meditation 
comes when you're not expecting it. Yeah. You know? It just makes you more, for lack of a better term, just a chiller person. It, do, it gives you the opportunity to make an intelligent decision yeah. on how you want to respond. No more just gut reaction. Exactly. Someone bumps into the bar and now all of a sudden you're in jail. Exactly. You can exactly. just a little more, you can just let it go. Yeah. So it's all about breaking the cycle of conditioning, especially for guys like you and me. Absolutely. Who've been in the infantry or been in the 10th Mountain Division and been in those high stress situations. Like you're conditioned to not think, just respond. Yeah. You know, so we have to break that cycle. How do we do that? No one teaches us how to do that outside when you're getting out of the military. You know? It's true. So I always say, I've been out 17, 18 years now, and I'm finally going through my transition. Being, being with the Mission Continues is finally helping me learn that I can't do everything like that anymore. Right. You know? Like, I have to learn how to be more politically correct. I have to learn how to get along with people and not just try and skip five different people just to get something done, which is what I love to do because I just want it. I don't like bureaucracy. Right. But the meditation just helps me learn how to process things better. Yeah, and it's like, in theory... Like it takes practice, right, to do those things. Like, cause you can, you can want till your heart's content to get along better with people, but until you like quit being a dickhead to people, you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Like, uh, people try to do that. Oh, I wanna, I wanna be friendlier, and then you're still an asshole. It's like, well, okay, that just cause you want to be friendlier, if you're not gonna fucking be friendlier, it doesn't really help anybody. Yeah, and that's an amazing point they bring up, and that's a, a perfect point to illustrate what meditation can do. Have you ever been in a situation where you've done something and then 45 minutes later, you're like, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. Oh yeah. Like you didn't think about it until 45 minutes later. And then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. So the meditation practice for me gives me the opportunity to do that before I actually do the the thing that I shouldn't be doing. So it kind of like fast forward you 45 minutes in the future to when you have that regret. Well, I'm not gonna go that far. (laughs) I don't want people to think you get like this cosmic sense or anything, but- um, you just, I think you definitely gain more foresight. You like you, you're you're better able to predict how your actions are going to exactly. lead to other responses. And not only that, but for me, where the growth really comes, especially for guys like us, people with like us who have post traumatic stress, is the ability to see that you're the one that's causing a lot of this pain. I'm the one that wants my family to be different, or I'm the one that wants my job to be there, or my boss to be better, and, and you know. Instead of just accepting that my mom is my mom, I, that was a very hard lesson for me. Sure. My teacher would always say, get out of your mom's life, get out of your sister's life. You just be there to support them when they ask for help. That's it. I mean, that's a hard lesson for people to sure. do. You sure. know, I want, you know, everyone wants their family to be the people you see on the TV shows and stuff. And then, and everyone instinctually thinks that they know how other people should better yeah, live their lives. Yeah. Instead Particularly of, when you're all fucked up yourself. Like yeah. but you your shit's falling apart, but you know <laughs> you know how they could be doing it better, yeah. right? Yeah, we always have that friend, right? That one friend. It's it's but that's that's where for me the practice comes in. It's difficult. It's not easy. It's not this uh just like silence, quiet. Everyone always says to me, I tried practicing meditation. I just can't do it. And I usually say, well, what's happened? Well, you know, I try to focus on my breath and I think about work and I think about this and I go back and focus on my breath and I think about this and then I get frustrated and I try to focus on my breath and then I, get, I just quit and I say, guess what? And, they're like, and they go, what? I said, you were practicing meditation. Right. That's what it is. It's constantly just coming back to your breath. I think once you get to a certain point, I'm not there yet. Maybe you're really good at focusing and you just don't notice anything anymore. But it's like you become the observer now it's kind of like you're sitting in a theater watching all of these thoughts go across the screen you're not visually seeing them i don't want people to think it's like psychedelic right but it's like oh this is anger oh this is jealous uh jealousy oh this is frustration oh this is distraction like you start to see these things and you learn not to attach them that's what it's all about not not chasing the rabbit like they said in matrix they're like just follow the the white rabbit or something like that yeah no don't chase the rabbit there's a was it the I forget which one it was, but anyway, oh, it was um, Pacific Rim, and they were talking about. Have you ever seen that movie? Mm-hmm. Um, when they're talking about, they do the, what's it called, where the they link up through the brain and they control the robot. Yeah, the rift, uh, the drift, drift. Don't chase the rabbit. And yeah, the R A B I T or something. He has an acronym for it. So that's exactly what meditation is: learning not to chase those thoughts. You know, those stories that we we're talking about. Sure. We write our stories and, you know, I write this amazing story in my head about what I think life is like right now. And, 
you know, I send it to my own editor upstairs in my head and the, the editor sends it to the other publisher in the other part of my head and the publisher publishes the books and they get printed and then I buy all the copies and I sign them for myself and yeah. I put them on my own shelf and not once do I ever let anyone read the damn story and say, hey, Anthony, that's not what's happening. Right. <laughs> you know? So the meditation practice, when my mind wants to write that story, because it's a mind, it's a computer, it always wants to write the stories and, and, and analyze things. It starts talking to me and it says, hey, you know, this is what's going on. And the other three people start to chime in. I have an opportunity to just not even listen to that and just come back to my breath and try and focus on what's going on in front of me right here. That's awesome. Yeah. That's super helpful. It's like bringing your world from out here all the way down to right here. It's kind of hard to visualize on a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'll end with one good story for those out there that are struggling. My teacher was in the hospital after overdosing one time. And I think this is in his book, At Hell's Gate. It's an amazing book. It'll change your life. He talks about these men coming to see him. And they asked him, are you going to do this again? Because he tried to kill himself with drugs and alcohol. And he said, absolutely. And they said, why? And he said, because anything has to be better than this. And the one guy looked at him and said, how do you know? I try just try and tell people you don't know and everything is in your mind and if you just pick up a phone and call somebody and say hey dude i'm fucking hurting here you know that's the difference like don't be afraid to ask on this episode of the longest war if you like what you heard please be sure to subscribe like and rate us on itunes blueberry soundcloud or your favorite podcasting app